0: Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On today's episode, I talked to Bobby Jameson in part two of the Biblical Reasoning Conversation about his new book, Biblical Reasoning, with Tyler Whitman that was over in part one if you wanna pop back and listen to that. We talked today about biblical studies and the relationship between doing theology as we exegete the text. So I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with Bobby. As always, we're brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. Go to csbible.com to find out more about this English Bible translation. And now my conversation with Bobby Jameson, but first, no big deal. Bobby Jameson here. This is part two of our discussion on biblical reasoning. He is uh, holding the book in front of the the video just to make sure everybody sees it. I didn't get a screenshot fast enough for that just to have your book there, but thanks for being on Church Grammar, Bobby.
1: Happy to. Wait, is this a video thing too or just audio?
0: <laughs> well, we're on video. Uh, it may show up in video, but it'll be primarily audio. So, okay. But that was good promotion. That was well done. It was, it was, uh, that's why I made sure I brought it up. Make sure people know that you're working hard here. So uh, now that this is probably your 80th podcast, I just appreciate the fact that you're still smiling. Happy to be with you, brother. <laughs> All right. We're going to talk about uh, biblical reasoning. So in part one, uh, before this, we talked with Tyler sort of from a systematic theological perspective and some of the idea of having these systematic categories uh, and reading the text. And then uh, you're sort of representing the biblical scholar uh, in the book, although I think it's fair to say that you are a theologian and Tyler is a very good biblical scholar. So I, it's, a, it's a, a little bit of a Goblerian uh, false dichotomy, but nonetheless, um, you know, you and I, uh, we talked about this before, but you and I both have the experience of sort of being theologically minded and doing a PhD in a biblical study setting and doing sort of a New Testament uh, focus. So I did the Trinity in Revelation. Uh, you did yours on Hebrews. And so it'd be interesting just to hear, um, maybe to start out your journey in sort of going the biblical studies route in that sense, studying with uh, Gathercole, Cole, right? Uh, and then sort of coming out and writing this book that's basically just a bunch of theological stuff forced into the text, you know, as we always get accused of doing. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. So how'd you, how'd you get there? What's, what's some of the ways that you've been shaped in that way?
1: Sure. Well, maybe a little bit of backstory, then the PhD, and then what's come after. Backstory would be, I've always been deeply interested in theology since I started kind of more seriously engaging with the scriptures as a college student. And I read classic theologians like Calvin and Owen and Warfield and, you know, people who are very uh, theologically rigorous but also engage extensively with the text, and those things are not uh, divorced from each other or, you know, that they, they don't exist apart from each other. Um, so I was being formed by some classic theologians, especially in the Reformed tradition. I was also studying Greek as an undergrad and beginning to think about New Testament studies, and I just loved trying to grapple in depth with the text. I loved the kind of insight, the fresh perspectives that can open up when you, you know, read Primary sources and just engage closely with the text. And so I began to think about academic New Testament study, even as kind of a long term aspiration. Uh, at the same time, I was reading some of the people doing sort of TIS type stuff. I read Marcus Bachmiel's book, Seeing the Text. I think mm-hmm. that's what it's called. I read, you know, some Francis Watson and Richard Hayes and people like that who kind of from a biblical studies side are engaging some of these more, the questions of the relationship of biblical studies to theology. And so I was kind of aware of some of those discussions and had an interest in doing what I could to engage with kind of the relationship of theology and exegesis. I wound up writing a, a PhD thesis that was very kind of straightforwardly exegetical. Uh, it's on atonement in Hebrews. It's a ton mm-hmm. of exegesis. Uh, it engages a bit with, you know, Old Testament sacrificial system, Levitical cult, stuff like that. But it's not kind of an overtly theological thesis, except in the sense that it's on atonement, so it's on a very theological subject. Um, but yeah, my thesis is kind of classically exegetical with a little bit of, you know, stuff on the Septuagint, stuff like that. Um, but I've, I've just had those theological interests all along. And in and, and one sense, a catalyst during the thesis was I did just a little bit on Hebrews kind of incarnational passages, chapter 2, chapter 10, and kind of saw some of the ways it was being handled in scholarship and just thought, oh, it looks like there's some room for more work here. And mm-hmm. so I began, I began um, reading some of the literature on New Testament Christology, you know, Bauckham, Hurtado, that kind of stuff and uh, began kind of a side project on Hebrews Christology that eventually grew into that book, The Paradox of Sonship. And so by looking at Hebrews Christology with the aid of kind of classical Christological resources, but in dialogue with modern scholarship, both on Hebrews in particular, as well as broader stuff on New Testament Christology, that was kind of a way for me to scratch that itch, which was still fundamentally trying to read Hebrews and grapple with Hebrews and uh, make an argument that tries to be persuasive in terms of just the text itself of um, how do resolve some key kind of questions and issues in the book, but using explicitly theological resources to do that. That's that's what the Paradox of Christology, uh, Paradox of Sonship book is about that came out last year. So I guess in that sense, I I began to try to work out, and I I was influenced by Wes Hill and the methodology of his book on Paul and the Trinity, you know, using more developed Christological and Trinitarian conceptions as exegetical tools. So in a sense, Wes's book was sort of, you know, path-breaking in a biblical studies sense. I then adapted that more to to classical Christological categories. But that's what what sort of set me on this path of, hey, you can actually use theological resources in exegesis and at least trying to do it in a way that is in dialogue with and making a contribution to contemporary New Testament studies. So I'll kind of leave it there and let you pick up what you'd like to from there.
0: Yeah, and I think you and I have talked about this before. You know, your your Paradox of Sonship and my Trinity and Revelation, they're in the same uh, series at IVP, yeah. and and i you sent me an early copy of it, and I was like, man, your first chapter and my first chapter, Spockham, Hurtado, Cameron Rowe, Wesley Hill, you know, both of us are so right. deeply influenced there. Um, I remember reading Wesley Hill's book and then just being like, I want to do this. You know, it, just, it hit me, and I was ready to go. Um, and so it, there is an interesting sense in which what you're doing there is both contributing to New Testament theology and contributing to systematic theology. Because, you know, in the systematic world, which I sort of see myself as maybe swimming in a little bit more, um, there's a lot of good Trinitarian systematic work. There's a lot of good dogmatic work. There's a lot of good retrieval and historical theology work. And then there's this growing need, I think, to talk about it in the text. So um, you'd saying, you know, sort of, As you're reading Hebrews, you're just starting to pick up on the need for these categories. Maybe talk a little bit more about that, because that's where I was at. It was sort of like, I like the high Christology stuff. I like some of that. It can be helpful, but it's not giving me all the tools that I need to deal with Revelation. And It sounds like you had some of the same... Uh, things with Hebrews.
1: Yeah, I suppose this happened a little bit organically. Um, I remember a, uh, a a very a very seasoned senior New Testament scholar who's a wonderful you know evangelical brother was um, he was at Tyndall House when I was there and he he bought me he had a kind of a, a book you know Amazon gift card or something and he was buying books for some of us young bucks and he um, I, I asked him to get me Cyril of Alexandria you know the McGuckin volume yeah. of uh, Cyril and the Christological Controversies which is like half analysis and half primary sources. And he was kind of like, kinda like, what on earth would you want that for? <laughs> <You know? laughs> but I read Cyril, and uh, just as I was as I was getting introduced to some of the debates around, you know, is there an early adoptionist layer of Christology in the New Testament? What about Romans one, Philippians two, Acts two? Is there a kind of early adoptionism Im- embedded here? Um, you know, that that then centers in Hebrews around the language of sonship. Uh, is Jesus appointed son at his exaltation? Is he eternally the son? Uh, you know, there's just, and scholarship is just all over the place. And I began seeing a lot of kind of a, Uh, an unquestioned assumption that it sort of has to be one or the other. Either he is son or he becomes son. Either this is a kind of a merely functional category, you know, merely something he attains to at his exaltation, or it has to be, you know, divine from all eternity, et cetera. Whereas Hebrews seems to be speaking of Christ as son in two distinct and complementary registers. So I started reading Cyril, just his Christological works, his exegesis. He deals a whole lot with Hebrews. Mm-hmm. I was reading some of those main primary sources, you know, his letters, um, et cetera. And I started just reading through the Greek text of his fragmentary commentary on Hebrews. And, and Cyril threads the needle of saying he both is son in a divine, eternal sense, and he becomes son. Uh, Mm -hmm. at his exaltation to heaven by being installed in office as Messiah. And so Cyril was able to give a sort of both and reading that hardly shows up at all in modern scholarship and that I think is right and that avoids a kind of um, zero-sum, you know, uh, either he is son or he becomes son Mm -hmm. precisely because... He has this whole perspective of an incarnational Christology. He is divine from all eternity. He becomes son by becoming—oh, sorry—he becomes man by becoming man. That then is the foundation of all else that he becomes in the economy. So he becomes priest. He becomes uh, son in the sense of Messiah in power at his exaltation. And it was precisely Cyril's kind of full-orbed, uh, you know, what what we would call creedal or eventually Chalcedonian Christology. Though of course there's historical nuances here. Um, It's it's that overall theological vision that enables him to uh, synthesize and preserve the diversity of these different things happening in the text. Where a lot of modern scholars, it's an either or, and so in a sense, I just thought Cyril's doing a better job exegetically, and it's precisely because of these theological resources. And that's part of what started to sort of click into place. Wait a minute, maybe there's a way to say some of these particular. Uh, Christological concepts, distinctions, etc they actually are reading strategies they actually are exegetical tools and there's there's you know there's good patristic scholarship looking at some of this there's even scholarship on Aquinas you know for instance, to skip ahead a little bit historically, but that talks about how various theological concepts and categories are exegetical strategies you know the hypostatic yep. the hypostatic union is an exegetical tool for Aquinas. Um, so there's a little bit of this stuff in kind of patristic scholarship, scholarship on medieval medieval theology, yeah. but it, it doesn't tend to get used in biblical scholarship because there's this sort of a disciplinary allergy to actually using theology in exegesis. It's really kind of a one-way track, like maybe, possibly, if that, you can do your exegetical work and arrive at some type of theological surmise or inference, maybe, mm-hmm. Within modern biblical studies, what you certainly can't do is start with it at the beginning of the whole endeavor and then use it on the text. That's like blinking red lights, do not pass go. You you can't do that. Um, Although there are exceptions, like the people we've talked about.
0: Yeah, well, and you know, you bring it up, and and I bring it up a lot. You know, there there we're all bringing presuppositions to the text, um, and we're all trying to use tools to read the text well, right? So there is a reciprocal relationship. In that you're reading Hebrews and saying, okay, there's something here. Then you read Chalcedon, you're like, hey, that something there is being fleshed out in these sort of ways here. So maybe talk a little bit about just how do you not be anachronistic while you're applying these Chalcedonian tools to the text?
1: Yeah, that is a good question. <clears throat> and I think it is it is an appropriate and valid question because we want to preserve the uniqueness, the distinctiveness, the sort of fullness and diversity of everything scripture is saying. And there are there are temptations, you know, to have a sort of ready-made theological answer, you bring it to the text. And, and in practice, that does sort of chop off a branch of the text, <laughs> you know, rather mm-hmm. than sort of rightly discerning it uh, and preserving its shape and so on. So I do think that's a legitimate concern. I do think anachronism is a legitimate concern. Concern as well. Uh, at the same time, I think, okay, I would give a couple of, a couple of uh, ingredients in an answer. One, conveniently, for a podcast called Church Grammar, I would say treating theology as a grammar of the text. Uh, meaning it's, it's, it's sort of displaying structures that make it intelligible. Here's what the text is saying. Here's the assertion. Here's the claim. Here's the announcement. And we can analyze it in a sort of second-order way uh, to get at its grammar. What are, and mm. even even in a literal sense, what are its patterns of predication? You know, I do think there are, uh, in a sense, um, explicit and implicit statements of what theologians call the communicatio idiomatum, uh, the communication of idioms or properties. I think there are explicit and implicit statements of that in the text of scripture. Mm-hmm. There's a kind of narrative version of it when Jesus, evidently a human being, you know, pronounces forgiveness of sins. Only God can do that. What's going on? You have a human subject articulating, as it were, a divine predicate. Um, or even in Hebrews, you know, Hebrews talks about, uh, although he was the son, this is Hebrews 5, 8, he learned obedience through what he suffered. There's something surprising here. There's something paradoxical. And I think Hebrews is using the word son in a divine register. He, he is the divine son. He's the son from all eternity. It's surprising uh, that he had to learn obedience through what he suffered. This this mm-hmm. divine son had to go through the educative process of submitting to divine discipline. That's a paradox. Um, And it's a paradox because it's a divine person undergoing a human course of training. Um, And so that that would be an instance where, you know, the communication of idioms is is explicitly a kind of grammatical rule. It's a rule about divine uh, naming Christ according to his divine nature and predicating of him what belongs to the other nature. And that's a grammatical rule that's resting on an ontological reality. Um, so that, that's one very concrete instance, concrete illustration of how theology is grammar. I also think theology is grammar in a broader sense. That is, it's a kind of subordinate explanation. It's, it's, it's aiming to make sense out of what's in the text by analyzing connections, uh, by discerning patterns and that kind of thing. And so the goal is to enable us to understand uh, and thereby articulate what the text is saying. So I do think we can use theological concepts, distinctions, et cetera, uh, in a subordinate role, in a ministerial role. And in a sense, we're we're submitting them to exegetical scrutiny. You know, you kind of find out if a tool is the tool for the job by putting it to work. So, you know, I've got this broken pair of like $1 sunglasses right here. Literally, I'll pull them up right now. I got them last summer when I lost my other sunglasses in an aquatic accident. Um, so, <laughs> so, so these are $1 sunglasses. The tiny little screw that holds the pin in, you know, fell out and I don't think I have a screwdriver that's fine enough for the tiny little deal here. You know, if I wanted to find out if I did, I would use the screwdriver and see if it fit. You know, and there's a kind of objective like, no, the screwdriver, you know, its head is too big. It won't, it mm-hmm. won't get this tiny little screw here there's a sense in which there's a kind of humility before the text, uh, a posture of listening, kind of attending to all of it. Uh, is this screwdriver really opening up what's there in the text? And and, and so we want, as, as theologians reading scripture or exegetes using theology, we want to simply have our ears remain open to the text. There's a posture of patience there, of humility, of kind of suspending judgment. Um, so it is a spiral. You know, the the right exegesis contributes to a theological formulation. The theological formulation helps as a tool that we bring back to the text. And and yeah, the text can talk back and continue to refine our theology. That's simply what it means to to listen to scripture. Yeah.
0: And when you talk about these tools and uh, you know, we we both use Kevin Rowe's language of pressures, you know, that's just a, such a helpful way of talking about it, or Child's uh, pressures and coercions type thing. Uh, you think about the early church, they are being pressured by the text to make these judgments, right? This is why uh, Arius is deemed out of bounds. Arius fills these pressures. Uh, Alexander fills these pressures. You have this sort of controversy in Alexandria before Nicaea. And this is what's happening, right? This is why there's disagreement in the early church, because the text is saying something about Jesus uh, that you're having to deal with, right? Uh, Modern scholars are using different types of literary critical tools or historical critical tools to try to figure out the same answers to the questions of who is this Jesus of Nazareth, right? So um, that's the thing that I always get, uh, I guess, frustrated uh, is probably not the right word, but frustrated is fine for our purposes, just we're all using tools. We're all applying tools from different presuppositions, trying to figure out what is it that makes sense of the text. And I think what you say there is so good, right, is, is does the tool work, right? Or does it at least give a plausible or reasonable uh, answer to what the text is actually saying?
1: I, I agree. And I think one element of this question, too, you know, Tyler was just up here for a seminar we did, and he, he kind of refreshed um, – he went over – you know, Kevin Rose' um, concept, which I think is, I think is in his um, his essay on Revelation four and five, and the theological disciplines, uh, that the most important question an exegete needs to ask is how and mm-hmm. how specifically in the sense of, uh, how does everything the text says make sense, cohere, fit together in, in one big picture. And I do think that part of what's going on is when you rule out theological tools or theological understanding as a viable and valid, uh, resource for exegesis, part of what's happening is that you're ruling out certain kinds of questions as being interesting or valid ahead of time. So, yeah. so of course, historical questions about, you know, the text provenance and, and, uh, the way it fits into the thought world of the ancient world or its specific circumstances of composition or all sorts of other things, those are taken as, as um, intrinsically valid questions in the modern biblical studies guild. But what's often ruled out is that question of understanding, uh, specifically theological understanding. All exegesis aims at understanding, uh, but there's, there's sort of certain um, facets of understanding or, or aspects of understanding or certain, certain kinds of understanding that are ruled out you know, and one of those really is theological understanding. How is it that uh, a text that claims that this, this son is, you know, the, the pre-incarnate, uh, eternal, you know, co-creator of the universe, how is it that he can be said to learn divine discipline? I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that seems to me, that how question seems to be very valid to ask of the author of Hebrews. How, how is it he's saying both these things at once? Is there some type of structure by which they cohere? Can we put those two together in a way that fosters and enables understanding? Um, In other words, a kind of theological understanding is not different in kind from a historical understanding or kind of, you know, Paul's correspondence with Corinth. How can we how can we piece that together back and forth? What is the what are these other letters refer to? What did they do? How can we sort of exercise a historical imagination here? Uh, I think I think in one sense, theology gets arbitrarily ruled out ahead of time, Mm -hmm. Um, whereas exegesis is always aiming at answering some type of how question. It's just that historical questions in modern biblical studies tend to get prioritized over theological ones.
0: Yeah, and one of the one of the rules or tools that you keep kind of hinting at here that we can kind of settle in and spend some time on, uh, you have, so in, in Tyler's, uh, you didn't hear it because you weren't there, but I read a few of the rules that I, that I thought were helpful. I think it's great how beginning of the chapters in biblical reasoning you have here it is. Here's what it is. Let's talk about it. So I want to read rule number nine on partitive exegesis, which is what you're getting at. Uh, So scripture speaks of Christ in a twofold manner. Some things are said of him as divine and other things are said of him as human. Biblical reasoning discerns that scripture speaks of the one Christ in two registers in order to contemplate the whole Christ. Therefore, read Scripture in such a way that you discern the different registers in which Scripture speaks of Christ, yet without dividing him. And so uh, you do this here in biblical reasoning. Uh, you've brought up Paradox of Sonship, where you're doing this in Hebrews. Uh, so let's take Hebrews kind of as a test case and maybe just talk through a couple of big uh, big ideas there. So you get into John as well, so we can we can do a couple different examples here. But let's start with Hebrews, because Hebrews is interesting. I always show it to my students when we talk through part of it in class, because I say, you, know, you notice? how when you read Hebrews 1, he just goes back and forth between divine and human language and doesn't explain it to you. He's like, oh, he is the one who created all things, and also he's been exalted. It's like, how does that even work? So talk through just some some big examples there in Hebrews and just how this helps us work that out.
1: Yeah, that's an excellent question, and I've, I've kind of pointed out the same thing in teaching Hebrews and teaching this kind of stuff in a seminary context. Um, yeah, if you just read the first four verses, you'll find a lot of this stuff set side by side, sort of without qualification or explanation. So here we go. Just Hebrews 1, 1 to 4, which is kind of an overture, you know, to the whole book. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, Now, the whole letter to the Hebrews is going to unpack all of this in more depth and detail. Um, But right away, we need to notice, first of all, that he's speaking about one son, it's the mm-hmm. same son who uh, is the one through whom he's spoken in, this la- in these last days, that is, by his whole incarnate ministry. So this is the son who showed up and accomplished our salvation. Uh, it's the same son who is the radiance of his glory, imprint of his nature, upholds the universe by the word of his power. So it belongs to the unique divine nature alone uh, that it, it, uh, uh, it upholds all things and is not itself upheld. So so Christ is clearly, this son is clearly on the divine side of the line that separates uh, creator from creation. Um, Yet at the same time, he makes purification of sins, which we know takes place in and through his human nature. At the same time, he sat down. That's a past tense verb that took place at some specific point Uh, In the past. And then, even more sort of uh, surprising, having become as much superior to angels. Well, wait a minute, how was he ever inferior to angels? Mm -hmm. That's a kind of mystery that the author of Hebrews sort of, you know, sets in a sort of time release fashion that he's then going to give us another big clue to in chapter two where for a little while he was made lower than the angels in in his incarnation, in his state of humiliation. Uh, Oh, for a little while he's made lower than the angels. Oh, right through his incarnation. Oh, so that's how he became superior to the angels. It's speaking about him, you could say with his incarnation presupposed and with some specific reference to his ongoing human state, his ongoing incarnation. Uh, So right away, you, in order to kind of make sense and piece together this narrative and this narrative's saving significance, you need to distinguish without separating kind of two conceptual realms. Uh, that which Hebrews is saying about Jesus, the Son, uh, with reference to his divine nature on the basis of his divine nature, and that which Hebrews is saying about the Son with reference to and on the basis of his human nature. And I would simply submit the author of Hebrews is kind of speaking in both ways, going back and forth. He's not really giving giving us a warning. Um, he's just doing it. And and in order to make sense of it, in order to understand how it all coheres, we need these sort of two categories of understanding. We're not separating them in reality. Again, this is only one son. There's an ontological basis of unity here, that all this coalesces in one person because this divine son united to himself a human nature. So there's there's a theological basis of unity here. But as we unpack this, as we discern this, as we discuss this, we need to, to maintain a clear mental distinction between what's true on the basis of his divine nature and what's true on the basis of his human nature. And the funny thing is like the... The sort of constituent elements of this understanding are present in all sorts of interesting places in scholarship. So I think it's I think it's Amy Jill Levine who wrote um, the study Bible notes in a Jewish study Bible. Uh, you know, a recent scholarly kind of Jewish study Bible, and she says, uh, commenting on these verses in Hebrews, you know, well, this is this is why Christians confess, you know, creeds like calcedon <laughs> like, yeah. like obviously, obviously, the stuff Hebrews is saying here. Well, that's why Christians have all that stuff about like Jesus divine and human nature, like, like, yeah. duh. You know, she she doesn't really have a dog in this fight. It just seems kind of transparent to her. You're like, yep, yeah, divine, human, got it both. Okay, like that's what Christians are talking about. <laughs> yeah, and so I that's think awesome. I think you often have kind of the pieces of this or elements of this understanding, but it's not often put into kind of a hermeneutical tool. And so, so what I would submit is uh, the substance of this is present even in the first four verses of Hebrews. You know, And I think we can legitimately, as an aid to understanding, uh, kind of walk through those verses and go, okay, well, which of these predicates really has reference to his divine nature and which has reference to his human nature? And I've, I've even got a little chart in the Paradox book where I kind of go through which is which. Or in some cases uh, that it has to imply both because it's a divine prerogative that he exercises Mm -hmm. as a human being. Like, for instance, sitting down at God's right hand. Uh, That's a marker of divinity. That's an index of divinity. There's only one throne in heaven. There's not multiples. So if you go and sit down up there, you're claiming something pretty big. But of course, the act of sitting down, I think, is a reference to an embodied human action. So, yeah, all that all that to say, I think I think uh, distinguishing those things aids our understanding and creates you could say kind of a program or a framework for then reading the rest of Hebrews and and the witness it bears to Christ's person and work.
0: Okay, so let's talk about another example, one that you bring up in biblical reasoning that I think I remember especially 2016, 2017 when all this sort of subordination um stuff was at its peak. First Corinthians 15 was the one that everybody wanted to go to and say, this is the most difficult one. This is the one we got to work through. Uh, obviously there's husband and wife stuff. We don't have to get into all the, to the EFS stuff necessarily, but it's a good case study that you use in biblical study in a, in a biblical reasoning to say, yeah, you've got to, you got to really carefully read this text, think about this text and a lot of the rest of scripture and apply this rule in a really careful way. So maybe talk through 1 Corinthians 15, where it talks about the fact that Jesus has delivered the kingdom over to God. There's this very clear submission language about him uh, as this one who has done that. Well, if he's God, it's his kingdom, right? So how is he h- handing it over? And it ends up being a, a pretty, pretty linchpin passage for a lot of people. So maybe talk through that one.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, if anybody wants uh, the full the full treatment at a, at a pace they can go on their own, there is a discussion in biblical reasoning. There's also an even fuller argument in a, a New Testament Studies article I wrote called 1 Corinthians 15:28 and the grammar of Paul's Christology, which I think was somehow unlocked and is online for free. So you can get there that go. from New Testament Studies. Um, yeah, so this is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 to 28, especially verse 28, which says, when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. So this is talking about, you know, Christ is resurrected and reigning in heaven right now, but all his enemies are not yet under his feet. Witness death. You know, So, so he's, he's presently reigning, but his reign is not yet consummated. So Paul's looking forward to when Christ's reign is consummated, when the kingdom fully comes, when even death itself is defeated. And Paul's saying that once all things are subjected under God's feet, uh, then Christ himself will be subjected to God the Father that God may be all in all. And um, I think there's a few uh, factors in the immediate context and the broader context that indicate that we need to, we need to sort of understand this statement with reference to and, and as being limited to Christ's ongoing human existence. Uh, one is that um, in the nearby context, Paul's talking about Christ as a man, Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 21, as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. So so Jesus' humanity is a prominent topic in the context. Uh, Another one would be that a number of Paul's scriptural citations and allusions have reference explicitly or implicitly to Christ's humanity. So for instance, he cites Psalm 8, 6, explicitly, uh, God has put all things in subjection under his feet. That is a psalm about the state of humanity at creation about uh, the creation mandate, God putting all things under humanity's feet. And so what Paul's saying is this mandate is not quite yet fully fulfilled. It will be fully fulfilled when Christ, the true and representative human being, completes and accomplishes humanity's vocation of exercising life-giving dominion over creation. So Jesus, as a human being, as the true human being, brings the human vocation to fruition by getting all of creation under human submission properly uh, truly and fully, for the first time since Adam lost that dominion, so we we could not be any more talking about Christ as a human doing human stuff to fulfill the human condition, human, 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 human. That's the right. story. That's the story Paul's telling. It, you know, it's a kind of first Adam, last Adam. You know, fulfillment of of, of humanity's vocation, kind of a soteriology going on here. Um, and there's other there's other scriptural allusions too, but that makes the point pretty clearly. Um, mm-hmm. So. Christ's act of submission is to fulfill the human vocation, and if we sort of probe the logic underneath that a little bit, well, how did the human vocation get out of whack in the first place? It was through disobedience. It was through a refusal of submission. So what's Christ doing? He's reversing that. He's setting it back where it belongs. He's, He's bringing the human condition back into alignment through one final act of fitting obedience. Also, we have to sort of think our way through, you know, if you think about the economy of salvation as one unified kind of U-shaped arc, you know, from Christ becoming incarnate, accomplishing our salvation through his life, death, resurrection, ascending to heaven. And then what Paul's doing is, you know, post-ascension, how does he cinch it all up? How does he bring it all to a fitting conclusion? This is the very tail end of Christ's saving economy, which then tips over into the new creation. So what's going on is it's his last, as it were, mediating or redemptive or salvific act. It's how he brings everything to a fitting telos. It's how he wraps it all up. And so there's a sense in which he's completing his commission. Uh, and then he's rendering up a kind of last act of obedience and submitting to the Father. It's, in, in this sense, as a human being... Uh, It's like a general being commissioned by a ruler. You know, the general goes out and conquers all the ruler's enemies. Once everything is fully subdued, the general returns to the ruler and says, mission accomplished. So uh, I think what's going on here is that, yeah, Paul has a very tight focus, on Christ's uh, embodied state, his ongoing humanity. And so even if uh, you want to say, theologically speaking, that there's a sense in which Christ's uh, submission lasts into the, uh, you know, the, the uh, permanent state going forward, that's still a human act. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not, you know, I do think Paul's focus here is always on this temporal, punctiliar, as it were, final act of submission. So I do think it still has a a limited scope. But even if as a sort of theological entailment of that, you want to say that the perfected human condition includes and entails submission, uh, it's still the perfected human condition. So I think I think this statement simply does not refer to it, simply does not have in view, uh, it, it does not target uh, Christ's eternal divine relationship to the Father.
0: Yeah, that's good. Um, the other one that's that's a big one that you bring up as well is in John. Uh, John's a really interesting one because John will do the same things. Uh, well, I guess Jesus is doing it in John's gospel, but he'll just be like, yeah, I and the Father are one, I do what he does, I say what he says. Also, he's greater than me. Also, before Abraham was, I am. You know, it's just kind of the same kind of thing where you're just running into this kind of stuff. Um, and so we see this, you know, in a lot of different places, right? Um, in Revelation, and uh, some of the work that, that that I've worked on, you know, you see this idea where he is both uh, the Lamb who was slain, and also the one who shares the throne with the Father. You know, the one who enacts judgment and receives worship equally with the Father, and also he's the one who has died for for the sins of the people. So um, I think maybe one of the concerns that that comes up here, not maybe, is one of the concerns that comes up here is. When you're doing partitive exegesis, you run the risk of becoming Nestorian. You've got two persons, you're separating Jesus. So give some just tips to people as you're going through there not to take this too far and basically have two Jesuses at the end of the day, where then you're sort of running into all kinds of heresies that, that, that can come up. So how do you how do you be careful not to do that without, I mean, I guess the obvious answer is, remember, it's one, and you don't have to worry about it. But, but what's more than that, maybe?
1: Well, that's, that's, a, that's a great question. And, you know, that's why we have two rules that come prior to part of exegesis, that in a sense are rules pertaining first and foremost to Christ's unity. So yep. I'm just going to read those two rules out really quick and then kind of explain that. So rule seven, as the book unfolds, the unity of Christ, the eternal divine Son, is the sole subject of everything Jesus does and suffers. Christ is one person, one agent, one who— Therefore, in reading scriptures witness to Christ, we must never divide Christ's acts between two acting subjects, attributing some to the divine son and others to the human Jesus as if there were two different people. So the, just, just to apply that then, the kind of diversity that you're discerning, you know, yeah, in the book of Revelation, he is both worshiped with the father and he's the lamb slain for the sins of the people. Or in the gospel of John, he both is a man, John eight forty, who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Uh, he gets tired, worn out, he sits down at the well, all that kind of thing. But also he says, my father is working until now. And I am working, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, and he says, I and the father are one. And he says before Abraham was, I am. So in a sense, we're the unity of Christ kind of operationalized as an exegetical rule says, despite that wild diversity of stuff Jesus does and says about himself, you must never divide him into two persons. Because that's creating a duality where there is none. This is only one agent, one person, one subject that we are talking about. And so then kind of the the flip side of that, which we've already mentioned, the communication of idioms uh, is, rule number eight in the book, uh, since Christ is a single divine person who subsists in both a divine and a human nature, scripture sometimes names him according to one nature, and predicates of him what belongs to the other nature. Scripture ascribes divine prerogatives to the man Jesus, and human acts and sufferings to the divine son. So read scripture in a way that recognizes and reproduces this paradoxical grammar of Christological predication. You could see a kind of um, implicit narrative version of this, and something like, you know, Jesus' calming of the storm. Uh, he sleeps in the boat. <laughs> He's a human being. <laughs> he wakes up. He tells the storm, knock it off and it stops. Mm-hmm. And so his disciples say, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? If you start from his humanity, you're like, what on earth? What category do we have for a human being who can tell nature to be quiet, right? What, what category do we have? Well. The, the only sort of fullness that makes sense of that is a human being who is at once also Yahweh incarnate, right? Mm-hmm. A, hum, a human being who is uh, the only true God of Israel come to himself in person in the flesh. That's the only way to make sense out of a dude who's sleeping in a boat who can then get up and say, yeah, knock it off, wind and waves. And then poof, instant obedience. And so in that sense, um, the paradox, the apparent contradiction, the wait a minute, how does both this work together? That's actually a sign that you're on the right track and you need to sort of keep maintaining both. Uh, The paradox is a clue that you're doing it right, not Mm -hmm. not something to be sort of parceled out into. well, the divine son over here is doing this. And oh, but gee, hold on. A human being is doing this other thing. You know, that's that's the sort of Nestorian temptation, which is a live temptation. And, mm-hmm. and, and comes from trying to sort of, um, you know, to, to sort of abstract from Nestorius and use it as a kind of type. Um, you know, so making kind of a theological claim more than a historical one, uh, you know, the Nestorian temptation sort of as a theological problem is, is looking at saying, well, wait a minute. If this one is true, how could the other be true? There must be two different, you know, agents, actors here. No, 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 no. That's the whole mystery and paradox of the Incarnation is that it truly is God who's asleep in the boat. And it truly is a human being who can command the wind and the waves you can you can name him according to either nature because the the two have truly come together in the hypostatic union. And so in a sense um it's good that you're pushing on that in terms of misuse of partitive of exegesis because logically speaking it depends upon uh number 1 the reality of the incarnation and number 2 then exegetical rules that guard the unity of Christ's person.
0: Yeah, that's good. So let's talk a little bit uh broader just about the Biblical Studies Guild scholarship, theological scholarship, all this kind of stuff. Um, as you're just sort of navigating the world, uh, looking at the at the scope of what's going on, uh, your own experience, what are a couple of things that you would say you just want to see? This is the old OnScript, uh, our friends on the OnScript pod- podcast, they're a great question. What needs to die in biblical studies? So what are some things that you'd say, like, Look, we can, we can agree to disagree about a lot of stuff, but here's a few things that just, I'm just tired of seeing them. I don't think they're helpful. They're not useful. Give, 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 give us a few hot takes on uh, biblical studies. Okay,
1: I've got two, and I hope that I can eventually get these out in a book someday. Um, maybe if I get to write a book on John and the Trinity, which is kind of a long-term idea. Okay, but here's two, uh, you know, two uh, verbal ticks of biblical scholars that I would love to just kill forever. One is a ritual denunciation of a substantive identity between the teaching of the New Testament and conciliar teaching on the Trinity and the person of Christ. In other words, just mm-hmm. the church's understanding of who God is and who Jesus is. There is a ritual denunciation. It, it has the role of kind of a reflex where scholars who are being very insightful, who are paying good attention to the text, who are, who are you know, historically trained and who are drawing all sorts of good conclusions, if they sort of feel themselves getting a little too close to like, oh, gee, this kind of feels like the doctrine of the Trinity, they will... And now now I'm being a little bit playful, a little bit cheeky, I can't read their hearts and minds, blah, 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 but it certainly has the feel to me of a kind of ritual denunciation. Like uh, I'm, I'm getting too close to the Trinity, so now I have to say, well, of course, this isn't what's really going on in the fourth and fifth century creeds, that has more philosophical mumbo jumbo, that has more developed conceptualities, blah, blah, blah. Well, yes, we're sort of getting closer to that, but we must maintain the gap. mind mm-hmm. the gap, the gap must be preserved. There's a sort of ritual distanciation of we can't get too close to saying, actually, Augustine was just right when he read this text. Otherwise, guys, we're all out of a job. Sorry. <laughs> Um, I do think, I do think, you know, Francis Watson's points he makes about the sort of policed boundaries and the kind of self-interested maintaining of sharp disciplinary boundaries as a kind of self-justifying, you know, this is why you need, this is why we need to have disciplinary guilds because, you know, we, we alone have, have a privileged knowledge that we can grant to you. Um, I do think there's something to that. So, yeah, that would be a ritual denunciation of, you know, the New Testament can't really be identical in a meaningful sense with conciliar creedal teaching on the person of Christ and the Trinity. You know, a, a closely related ritual denunciation that I would love to see scuppered forever, you know, buried and never to be zombified and returned is really a ritual denunciation of metaphysics. Mm. So, that would be. Uh, again, it comes out and kind of saying, "Well, you know, maybe maybe John has some type of vague idea of, you know, okay, maybe maybe there's a kind of proto-trinitarian whatever going on here, but." We can't probe the text for any type of metaphysical depth or coherence because that only belongs to Greek philosophy, or because that only belongs to sort of later syntheses of a kind of, well, you know, you get a grammar of, you know, Greek philosophy, the kind of, you know, alloy of the day that gets mixed in, and after the Neoplatonic, you know, kind of developments and early Christianity, blah, 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 blah. So it's particularly that we can't make any sort of strong metaphysical claims. For instance, you know, uh, I, think, I think there's all sorts of strong metaphysical stuff going on in, in John's gospel where act follows being. Therefore, therefore act reveals being. Therefore, mm-hmm. personal orders of operation reveal personal uh, orders of existence. Um, I think there's all sorts of metaphysical stuff going on in John that modern scholarship, again, some folks will discern this sort of piecemeal but there's a kind of resistance to using any any type of metaphysical grammar uh, in doing exegesis. So for me, one one project I'd love to pursue a little bit more is kind of working out more specifically metaphysical tools, things like a a, a metaphysics of participation as a grammar of the creator-creature distinction, that type of thing, um, for for putting that to work in discerning kind of the relationship of creator to crea- crea- uh, creator to creation in John's gospel, stuff like that. So denunciations of The New Testament actually teaches the creedal trinity and denunciations of any kind of use for metaphysics or ability to make metaphysical claims, you know, on the basis of the text or sort of discern a metaphysical grammar. You just you get it so often uh, it's repeated. You know, Michael Sandel, the political philosopher, has a uh, he has a a comment in a very different context where he basically says when politicians repeat a hallowed verity so often that it sort of uh, starts to wear thin, you can start to suspect whether it's really true anymore. Right, mm. And I think, I think at least in my reading of, of modern biblical scholarship, the kind of endless denunciations, yeah, endless dis- distancing from those two realities, to me, bespeaks a certain, oh, I wonder if they're protesting a little too much.
0: Yeah, I, I, one of the things I, I think I mentioned at one point is, uh, you know, it, it, even if you deny a Trinitarian reading of Revelation, it seems like everybody who wants to deny it still has to deal with the reality of it, right? I mean, it's still there. Yeah. You got to do something with it. Um, And, you know, you and I would both make some sort of an argument that these classical tools are more helpful than the alternatives. That's right. right? Um, Now, what about uh, the last question here, kind of a related uh, uh, something that we I think we agree a lot on too is sort of um, the extent of the usefulness of the high low Christology conversation. I think. Uh, I'm very complimentary in the sense that there's so much work that Bachem and Hurtado and these and, and you know Hingle and all these did that was really helpful historically to say hey the earliest Christians actually this wasn't made up later you know Harnack was wrong, uh, Bousset was wrong. Um, relatedly, there's sort of a movement of theological interpretation going on as well. Uh, I think you say in the book I was giving Tyler a hard time about this offline. I'll give it a hard time to you about it online as you sort of say well we're not really doing theological interpretation <laughs> even though it kind of sounds like and I was like but you are right. So uh, maybe think through a little bit of like those big conversations that are very close to what you're doing and what you're thinking and how you relate to high-low Christology, theological interpretation, and, and just how you see that landscape working out and what you're doing.
1: Sure. Well, to start with the theological interpretation question, it's partly because we are trying to make a very pushy claim in as polite a manner as we can muster, which is this isn't theological interpretation. Like That's just one sort of flower in the bouquet of available interpretive options alongside Mm -hmm. historical stuff and ideological criticisms of various kinds and whatever, uh, part of the claim we're making is a, an adequate exegesis has to involve theology. So, Mm -hmm. so we're, we're sort of trying to get that, that front adjective off. We're not trying to be limited to theological exegesis. We're trying to talk about exegesis and actually mm-hmm. better exegesis in, in a kind of objective sense. So that's, that's part of why we're having a little bit of distance from TIS, though of course, we, yeah, in some ways this very much is a manifestation of TIS or downstream from TIS, yeah, in many ways. But, but we're, we're trying to kind of say, yeah, don't pigeonhole this into just a sort of continuation of a certain methodological substream. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, other part of the question...
0: High, low Christology.
1: Yes, high, low Christology. I mean, on the one hand, I would also just want to say, you know, that kind of work has just been so catalytic and fruitful for generating all kinds of good stuff. Yeah. Um, even, you know, I think that an interesting example, which is kind of revisiting those categories, but but it's downstream from it, you know, Ben Reynolds' um, edited volume on the Gospel of John as Jewish Messianism. Now, I, don't, I mean, in some ways, it's, it's 30 years downstream from some of this stuff, but but I still think Questions about um, the kind of uh, the, the the manner in which New Testament Christology fits with, emerges from, interfaces with um, early Jewish messianic expectations, in particular, I think, is a is a really important question, and that's part of what's going on in the early high Christology stuff. Um, So I do think there's still good work to be done there. Uh, It doesn't necessarily operate under the sort of paradigm of high and low Christology. Um, I think probably the, oh, how can I put this? This is not like a, a matter of strict logical necessity, but it does seem to me that if you use high and low Christology, kind of meaning, you know, high is a sort of fully formed divine Christology, low is some type of less than divine, you know, whether you see that as manifested in any New Testament documents or putative earlier sources than New Testament documents, or whether you're talking about it in terms of Jewish Jewish messianology uh, or otherwise, um, I think it tends to create a kind of uh, how can I, it, it plays into the hands? It seems to me of a lot of developmental schemes, or it's kind mm-hmm. of asking a question about point of origin, even if you compress the developmental timeline. You know, it's it still tends to play into kind of, okay, well, how did this emerge? And it's and it's looking at it fundamentally in terms of historical antecedents or historical explanatory causes. You know, Andrew T- uh, ter Ern loke I think his name is, or Loke, I'm mm-hmm, not sure. Mm-hmm. He, he wrote a very fine volume in the SNTS series uh, on the origins of divine Christology. And he, he argues it has to go back to Jesus himself. Uh, there's no other way to account in terms of the historical emergence, you know, uh, Dennis Farkas-Falvey puts this very concisely in his book on the Trinity where he says, if Jesus didn't think he was divine, basically nobody else had any business thinking he was divine. <laughs> <laughs> that's, right? Right. <laughs> that's a paraphrase, but that's basically what he says. And, and Loke's book, or Loke's book, has um, they make some really good historical arguments there. So I think there's still good work being done under that rubric. But I would say, you know, one weakness of that, of that framework is, of course, uh, it, it has to be both and right? <laughs> that that, that there's, no, there's no use setting these categories against each other. The only Jesus the New Testament ever knows is both divine and human. And mm-hmm. so I, I do think there can be a kind of false dichotomy or you're sort of shoehorning evidence into one category or the, or the other. There's a kind of, yeah, playing them off against each other in a zero-sum fashion that I think is almost endemic. that framework and i think i think um in one sense what i'm hoping is some of my contribution in a new testament facing way both in the paradox book and in biblical reasoning and 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 maybe in some other stuff is to say um yeah we need to think within full-blown incarnational categories to make sense of all sorts of new testament evidence which means well if you're saying high and low both at once great but that's not exactly how those categories tend to get used
0: Yeah. Well, I love you bringing up Farkas Faldi. His biblical path to the triune God is like 120 pages of better than anything I could ever write. You know, I read it and I was like, well, this guy's done it. So it's it's over. But uh, anyway, all right, that was very helpful. Um, We're about 50 minutes in, so we probably should wrap it up here, even though I could do this for six hours, about 100 biblical texts and everything else. But uh, this is helpful. Thank you. um, Your book, Biblical Reasoning, uh, Paradox of Sonship, both uh, very well worth reading. I am going to plug our IBR session. Uh, that oh, is going you. to be um, about the Paradox of Sonship. So for those of you who don't know, Stephen uh, Presley and I run an IBR research group called the Theology, Hermeneutics, and Biblical Interpretation section. Don't tell anybody, but we just, uh, we're just we just there as the theologians who like the Bible. So um, our group is sort of having these discussions about the Christian doctrine of God and how that fits into scripture. And so we're, we're doing a discussion uh, on uh, Bobby's book, The Paradox of Sonship. We'll have uh, Mark Genolet, Old Testament professor at Beeson. Uh, we'll have Fred Sanders, Amy Peeler. And then since I'm a co- uh, co-runner of it, one of us has to give a paper, so I'm going to do something. Try to stay out of the way. Uh, just reflecting on uh, what Bobby's doing here. So if you want to check that out at IBR, uh, that'll be uh, November 19th from 3:30 to 5:30. So I see that really, Bobby, as being a, uh, a very friendly conversation. I think everybody there is going to be relatively positive. So the idea isn't let's get somebody to come in here who thinks the Trinity's not really uh, legitimate or that Christ is you know is not really divine, but really just some some theological and exegetical reflections. So thank you. I'm. Really Really looking
1: forward to that i'm grateful for the opportunity yeah it'll be fun all right bobby well thanks for being on church grammar thanks brandon